days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the end. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all the things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. We come now as your people because we want to hear from you. So we pray that as your word has been read, that you now through your spirit would speak specifically to our hearts, that you would change us where we need to be changed, that you would encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Father, help us as we hear your word now to not leave this place merely hearers, but doers of your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You can be seated. During our Advent series, we've decided to walk through each of the Gospels and how they introduce us to Jesus. Um, we've said that there is one story of the advent of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, but it is told to us from four different perspectives. Um, we're picking up that third perspective here with the Gospel of Luke. And what we want to do this morning is consider how Luke decided to introduce us to the person of Jesus. Last week, we considered Mark's gospel, and Mark's gospel is unique because it doesn't include a birth story. Here in Luke, we have the second birth story. If the first one was in Matthew chapter 1, the second one is here in Luke chapter 2. Now, back in Luke chapter 1, we did not uh, take a look at it because it, it for, is the, the uh, prophecy of John the Baptist's birth. We considered John the Baptist last week, but there are riches of of prophecy and truth in Luke chapter 1, which builds up to Luke chapter 2. In Luke's gospel, there's, there's really one main idea as we consider these two scenes in Luke 2 verses 1 
through 20. There are two scenes that are happening. You have the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. You have the characters of, of Mary and Joseph and then the baby Jesus. And then in verses, starting in verse 8, the scene shifts. And we have these unnamed shepherds who are out in the field and these angels who appear to these shepherds. And, and they experience this revelation from the Lord, and then they return back to Bethlehem. So as we consider this story, um, we can have one major takeaway from this, and it's that the advent of Jesus occurred under very humble and ordinary circumstances, but left an unmistakably glorious impact because of who he is and what he came to do. And as Christians coming to yet another Advent season, it's easy for us to become so familiar with the story of Christmas, so familiar with the, the story of Jesus' coming that we can write it off. It can, it can become ordinary to us. It can become normal to us. It can, in a sense, become boring to us. What I want to help us do this morning is to marvel at the sheer wonder of the coming of Jesus as we consider both the humble circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth and the glorious impact it had. So this Advent season, last week as we considered our need for repentance, this week I want us to consider our need to marvel at God's glory. And I want to help us see what Luke is, this picture that Luke is painting for us through his narrative that as heaven and earth meet, as, as the God-man comes onto the scene, we see both his humility and his glory in one singular story here. I want to see how that's going to change us. So the advent of Jesus occurred under very ordinary circumstances, very humble circumstances, but it left an unmistakably glorious impact because of who he is and what he came to do. Maybe it will do the same for us this morning. All right, so let's start with Luke 2, verses 1 through 7, as we look at the humility of Jesus' birth. Luke 2, believe it or not, if you haven't read Luke 1 in a while, Luke 2, the way this story starts, it's actually a little startling. It, it's a little surprising. If you're, if you're tracking with Luke chapter 1, and you come to the birth of Jesus, you don't expect it to happen in this way just the way that the story ramps up. So if we had just read Luke 1, we would have seen how the birth of Jesus was foretold. So we have the birth of John the Baptist that's foretold, and you have the birth of Jesus that is foretold in Luke chapter 1. So Mary's given all the details of everything that's about to happen to her, and the same happened to John the Baptist's parents. Um, Luke gives us this backdrop to Jesus' birth, much like Matthew does. So he tells us that the angel Gabriel came to Mary and told her, and this is, this is what the angel said in Luke chapter 1, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And then, and then we, we see Mary, she responds with praise. She praises God for this news of the coming Savior. Then after that, Luke describes for us the birth of John the Baptist. 
So it goes in order. We have John the Baptist prophecy that's, that's given first, and then the prophecy of Jesus' birth, and then we have John the Baptist's birth, and then in Luke chapter 2, we have Jesus' birth. Um, Elizabeth, John's mother, gave birth to John with neighbors and friends and relatives nearby. So it was, it was typical that they rejoiced with her, um, John's birth was met with this immediate public proclamation and celebration. It was made known in the streets because his father, Zechariah, was um, a prominent figure in Israel at this time. Um, it was a glorious, it was this, this special event. And yet what we saw in John the Baptist's prophecy is that John the Baptist is merely the forerunner. He is, he is merely the messenger of the Messiah, that John the Baptist is not the Messiah. And yet his birth is detailed by Luke as being a glorious event. This is, this is wonderful, it is great, and people are rejoicing, and they are coming and praising God for the, for the way that it happened. So then you turn to Luke chapter 2. And as Luke moves into chapter 2 to describe the birth of Jesus, who is not the messenger, but is the Messiah himself, what do we expect? We expect the birth of Jesus to be this grand and glorious event where everyone has come around, anyone who has heard that, yes, since John the Baptist has come, this other one who's going to be born, he himself is the Messiah. This news has already been shared with Mary and with Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah, they know of this great news. And so what we expect is, now the time has come. And everyone from the area gathered around to await the birth of the Messiah who is going to be named Jesus. We expect the circumstances of Jesus' birth to reflect the greatness of Jesus. As, as Mary goes into labor, you know, we can almost expect this dramatic and public announcement in the streets. The king is on the way. She's in labor now. It won't be long. He's coming. We expect crowds to gather right outside the home of Joseph and Mary as she gives birth to the Savior, Jesus. We expect eager anticipation. But how does Luke 2 begin? It startles us. What we find in Luke 2 is a meager and surprising seven-verse-long description of Jesus' birth. And as those details are shared and those circumstances described, I, I don't know if this has ever hit you in this way, but it shocks me how subtle, how subtle and how ordinary and how humble and, and even humiliating the, the circumstances of Jesus' birth are. So Luke chapter 2 begins like this. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. What? What? What, what does that have to do? What, what's, what's happening now? What happened? The circumstances of Jesus' birth could not have been more ordinary or humble. So let's, let's just consider each of these circumstances that, that are related to Jesus' birth and just see, just see how normal, just see how, how ordinary and, and how humble these, these circumstances are. So first, you have this national census that took Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Um, there's a decree for an empire-wide census that's sent out from Caesar Augustus. Um, the census required everyone to return to his or her hometown to be registered. It's for tax purposes. Uh, the Romans utilized this, this frequently. It wasn't, wasn't something that's just totally random, out of the blue. I mean, it's, it was normal. Just, it was for tax purposes. Um, it was common practice. 
Um, It just so happened that right at the time when the ultimate son of David would be born, his birth mother would make a journey to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, as was prophesied in the Old Testament. But don't overlook this. We always go so quickly to that, like, look, there's fulfillment here. Look at this great fulfillment. There is fulfillment. But consider the means of it. It's it's so ordinary. Uh, Joseph and Mary did not take it upon themselves to journey to the city of David because Mary carried the eternal Davidic king. They knew that, by the way. The angel told them that, that he is going to reign on the throne of David forever. But Mary and Joseph didn't hear that and say, you know what we should do? You know what would be just a great picture? You know, I was reading in, I was reading in uh, the, the scriptures and I, I read this. Wouldn't it be so cool if we actually went to Bethlehem to have the baby? Like, that would be awesome. It'd be so fitting. We could tell everyone of how, you know. No, they didn't, they didn't do that on their own. Um, Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem because they didn't have any other choice. Uh, There was a call from the Romans who had authority in in Israel at the time, and they said, you got to go to your hometown. So Joseph's like, oh, yeah, well, that's Bethlehem for me. And they load up, and and they they go. They made pilgrimages home just like everyone else in the Roman Empire. Everyone was going to their hometown, and so Joseph and Mary did. Now, Now consider the journey, the journey itself. We're, we're, you know, the birth of Jesus Christ is the, the heading here, but we have this census, and then in verse 4, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. This isn't like a short walk, y'all. Like, from, from where they are in Nazareth um, to Bethlehem was a 90-mile journey. Okay, there, there's no, there's no Uber back then, so you know, there's, they're not hopping on a plane for. Mm-mm. This is pregnant Mary and Joseph making this long, hard journey from Nazareth all the way to Bethlehem, just because the Romans told them to, just because the Romans told them they had to do it, and so here they are. They load up and they go. I can only imagine what that would have been like for Mary. Some of you can really imagine what that would have been like if you've ever been pregnant in the dog days of summer here in Mississippi. You're like, I can't even imagine what that would have been like. This is the mother of our Lord. You know, who, no special treatment here. You know, it's, she's going home just like, you know, other, I can imagine them passing other, other men, other women, other women who could have been pregnant at the time. Like, oh man, this is ridiculous, right? Like, oh my goodness. And they're traveling back home, but it's ordinary. It's, it's, it's normal. It's humble. Now consider Joseph and Mary themselves. Consider these average parents. They were relatively unknown and insignificant. No one knew who they were. So, in every other way than the holy privilege afforded them by the Lord, they were just like everyone else. Okay, the Lord has has seen fit to show them favor and to give them this task. But other than that, they're just like everyone else. Now, contrast that with John the Baptist. John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they were described, even by Luke, as being righteous and blameless before the Lord. Zechariah was a priest. They had status and prestige. But Joseph and Mary, even though they were favored by God, they were very forgettable in the eyes of the world. Jesus wasn't being born into the home of a prophet, a priest, or a king. He wasn't even being born into the home of a noble politician at the time. These were nobodies. Jesus was born to a virgin and her husband, the carpenter. 
Okay, now consider Bethlehem, an obscure city. All right, so this, he's, they're, not, they're not traveling to the center of life in Israel. Bethlehem was a forgotten city. It's the equivalent of a tent village. Bethlehem is, is nothing. It's, even though it's the home of King David, it was a forgotten, insignificant place in Israel. We, we sing, O little town of Bethlehem, and with the emphasis on little, okay? Beth, Bethlehem was not some super special place other than the significance of it being David's hometown. Now consider the nursery that Jesus spent his early moments and early days in. When the time came for Jesus to be born, we read in verse 6, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. Listen, I mean, listen to this description. The time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. End of story. So ordinary. Just, just a normal description. Yeah, well, it was time for her to give birth, and then she gave birth, and this is where they were. So, so unassuming. After, in Luke 1, this, this prophecy that the one you're going to give birth to is going to reign as a king over a kingdom that will never come to an end. And here's how Luke describes the birth. In his ordinary, humble, even boring ways, the nursery itself. Jesus was laid in a manger, or this like feeding trough, because there was no place for them in the end. The scene highlights the poverty and lack of influence of Mary and Joseph. They couldn't pull any strings. Okay, They couldn't pay any extra. Jesus, although a king, was not born to royalty in a palace with crowds waiting to celebrate. Jesus was born in obscurity in a forgotten city to average parents. His birth is shockingly normal, average, and ordinary. Now, what's, what's the significance of this before we get to the, the angels and the shepherds? The humble circumstances of Jesus' birth reflect the humiliation of the incarnation. Okay? The humble circumstances of Jesus' birth reflect the humiliation of the incarnation. As we've said, these circumstances don't do justice to who Jesus is, right? Jesus is, is great. He is God who's taking on human flesh, so we expect his, his birth to, to mirror that, for it to be glorious and grand as Jesus is glorious and grand. But it, in fact, is a very good picture of what Jesus has done in the incarnation. The contrast between the birth's commonness and the child's greatness could not be greater. But what we see here is that God chose to identify in the humblest way with those made in his image. Paul picks this up in Philippians 2 uh, when he writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I love what theologian John Murray says about this so insightful it would have been humiliation for the son of God to have become man under the most ideal conditions humiliation because of the discrepancy between God and his creation between the majesty of the creator on the one hand and the humble status of the most dignified creature on the other okay so what John Murray is saying here is that even if 
even if Jesus had received human royal treatment, okay, and he would have been born in the most ideal circumstances to the most ideal parents, the simple fact that the eternal God has taken on human flesh is humiliating. Theologians call it Jesus' state of humiliation. He leaves the eternal glory of heaven and descends upon a sinful, fallen earth and becomes a part of it. He joins in. So even, even if the circumstances of the birth had been glorious, the most glorious birth story you've ever seen, it would have been humiliating for that birth to be of God himself taking on human flesh. So these humble circumstances do justice do justice in some small way to what's happening in the incarnation as God becomes man. Now, now something else we can see and take away from this. The humble circumstances of Jesus' birth remind us that Jesus, though eternal God, comes near to us in our weakness. He doesn't just come near to us when we're at our best. He doesn't just come near to those of us who are the most faithful or the most righteous or have the most money or status or influence. No, these humble circumstances of Jesus' birth communicate that Jesus partakes in our weakness. Jesus is born in obscurity to average parents. He's, he's laid in a manger. Jesus we say often, is the light of the world. But sometimes what we forget is that the light of the world entered into and took part in our darkness without himself sinning. What we see here is that although Jesus remains unstained by sin and remains pure, he does not run from your sin. He does not run from my sin. Jesus entered our weakness and took part in our suffering. Jesus took part in every circumstance and consequence of life in a fallen world without himself committing sin. So if you are weak, if you are poor, if you are hurting this morning, Jesus is very near to you. He became poor. He became weak. He became the one who deserves the praise of nations. He became obscure. That's why there's redemption. That's why there's reconciliation. That's why there's freedom. That's why there's healing. And that's why there is forgiveness available to you in Jesus. Because Jesus, though eternal God, draws near to sinners. The humility of Jesus. Jesus, in and of himself, was far too worthy to stoop down to our level. Far too worthy to come down to where we are. And yet in his great love for us, the God who is far beyond us came down, came down and joined us. The humble circumstances of Jesus' birth communicate the humility 
of Jesus in the incarnation. But we don't just see humility in the birth of Jesus. We also see glory in verses 8 through 20. Although the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth were humble, his advent, his coming, left this unmistakably glorious impact on people and everyone around because of who he is and what he came to do. So if, if we look in verse 8, the scene shifts. We have this new scene that Luke communicates to us. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. So adjacent to this humble birth of Jesus, we're about to see this breakthrough of God's glory. So Jesus' birth is both ordinary and glorious. We see this glory in these fields outside of Bethlehem. All right, so what we read in verse 8 or verse 9 as these shepherds are out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night, which again is very normal, very ordinary, that they did this every night. This is just another day for these shepherds, nothing, nothing significant happening. And then in verse 9, the heavens open and the glory of the Lord appears. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. All heaven is breaking loose in the fields of Bethlehem, and the fields of Bethlehem almost become this theater for, for an angelic appearance, for the glory of God to shine in. It's this burst of light and glory. This angel, he comes in, he appears to them, and then he speaks. And the shepherds, even just at the sight of the angel, before he speaks, but especially after he speaks, they are filled with fear. They are filled with reverence. They are filled with wonder. The angel shares what he calls good news of great joy that will be for all the people. He says that nearby in the city of David, a Savior has been born, and the Savior is Christ the Lord. The angel gives this description of what they would find if they, if they traveled to Bethlehem, and then after the angel finishes proclaiming this good news, a heavenly choir arrives on the scene, and they sing this glorious hymn, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then the lights and the sounds of the angels, they fade into the background, and the shepherds are left with the darkness again. They're in the dark of night, standing with one another. I can only imagine what, they, what else they would have said other than, let's go to Bethlehem and see if this is true. Let's go to Bethlehem and see what the angels have just said. But they go to Bethlehem, and as they arrived, the angels' words were confirmed. They found Mary, and they found Joseph, and they found this baby boy lying in a manger. They told Mary and Joseph what they'd experienced, and then they went home. They went back to the fields, and it says that they were glorifying God for all that they had heard and all that they had seen. Here's what we see here. The advent of Jesus sparks joy and wonder that leads people to proclaim to ponder and to praise him for the good news of the gospel. This glorious impact. We see it in three responses. So, Jesus is born. There are three responses to the birth of Jesus in Luke 2, 8 through 20. The first is from the angels. All right, Jesus is born and the angels come to earth, okay? So, we have angels who are preaching and angels who are praising. So, first you have this angel who is preaching. And what, what is he preaching? 
This angel is preaching the gospel. He is preaching the good news. He calls it good news of great joy that Christ has come. And this includes two things. First, it includes the identity of Jesus, and it includes the mission of Jesus, all right? So the angel attests to Jesus' identity and mission when he said one thing. It's in one verse, in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So let's consider the identity of this baby who has just been born in obscurity in Bethlehem. First, he says that he is the Savior. He is the Savior. This Jesus that we celebrate today and every single week as Christians, we celebrate him because he himself is our Savior. He has come to rescue sinners. The baby that they're going to see lying in a manger is the Savior of sinners. And so what we see here is that the advent of Jesus is a rescue mission. And and you can just sense their wonder, how is he going to do it? How is the baby, I don't get it, like it's a baby. How is the baby the savior? What's, what's the baby going to do? Do we touch the baby and then we get saved? Like what, what, I mean, you know, just their wonder and their questions and their minds. But what they know is that this angel has declared to them, this day in this city that's nearby, there has been a baby who's been born and he is the savior of sinners. But he also says that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. The baby born in Bethlehem is the promised Messiah. It's as if these angels are telling anyone who's familiar with the Jewish scriptures, look no further than the baby born in the city of David to find the promised Davidic king who would save and reign over his people. He is the Messiah come to you. And then you see it in the angels' song. As the angels come and they sing, they sing of God's glory and God's peace that has come to earth. And it's come to earth because the Messiah has been born. And it's the Messiah who will bring peace to people and between people and God. But he doesn't stop there in describing Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the Christ. But he's also the Lord. And how significant this is. A sense of wonder should just wash over us. The baby born in Bethlehem is the ruler of heaven and earth who will defend and lead his people. The baby that's just been born in obscurity, he is the one who is worthy of the worship that's offered to him by the shepherds and the angels because it is this baby, this Jesus, who is the Lord of all, the helpless one who has to be clothed The helpless one who has to be picked up and laid down in a manger. It is he who is the reigning Lord of the universe, worthy of global praise. The one who was born in Bethlehem, he is Savior, Christ, and Lord. But then the angel also declares to us the mission of Jesus. And that's where I would ask you, why was Jesus born? You can think of your favorite Christmas carol lyric to answer that, okay? So why was Jesus born? There are lots of answers that we could give to that question. What I want us to do is to look at verse 11 again, but I want us to read it in reverse order, okay? Look at verse 11 again, and let's consider it in reverse. The good news of great joy that the angel declared in the fields of Bethlehem was that a Savior who is Christ the Lord was born this day in the city of David, unto you. Look look at it backwards. A Savior who is Christ the Lord 
is born this day in the city of David unto you. I love how the CSB translates the verse. The CSB translates it like this. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Jesus was born for you. Jesus was born for us as Savior, as Christ, and as Lord. And I love how we emphasize that Christmas is all about Jesus. Christmas is about Jesus. It's all about his praise and his worth and his glory and and who he is and what he's come to do. It's all about him. It's all about his glory. But don't be mistaken. Christmas is also for you. Christmas is for this city. Christmas is for our country and Christmas is for the nations. Christ came for you. Behold that glorious mystery for just a moment. God stooped down. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh. He humbled himself, even to the point of death, and death on a cross. He willingly entered a state of humiliation. Why? Just to show how great he is? We do see how great he is. We do see his glory. That is a part of it. But he did it for you. He did it for you. Behold the wonder that the creator of the universe took part in his creation, that the sustainer of all life was held in human arms all for you. When you're tempted to doubt God's faithfulness to you or to doubt God's love for you, remember the incarnation remember that yes in this day a savior was born on this day a savior was born on this day the messiah was born the lord was born but he was born unto you he was born in the city of david for you the mission of jesus is that he's not just come to rescue sinners at large he has come to rescue you from your sin okay so one response to jesus's birth angels come and they preach and they proclaim and they praise the glory of God in his gospel the second example we see the second response is Mary alright so after this scene in verse 15 the shepherds they, they resolve let us go over to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us and they, they hurried they went quickly they, they went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger and that's all they needed to see That's all the confirmation they needed. Now they knew that every single thing that they had just heard was indeed true. And so since they saw that it was true, it says in verse 17, they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. They recited Luke 2 verse 11 to Mary and Joseph and anyone else who would have been there. And notice Mary's response. So it says in verse 18, that everyone who heard it, they just wondered. They wondered at what the shepherds had said. And it says in verse 19, but Mary treasured up all these things, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. As Mary hears this news of what has happened in the fields of Bethlehem, and then she turns and she looks down on her baby boy, she had further confirmation that this baby is her Savior. 
their story of God's glory shining on the fields of Bethlehem and the good news of great joy that Christ the Lord has come and was indeed lying there before them, Mary would never be the same. Mary would never be the same. She bottled up all of this glorious news that she had heard and she stored it in her heart. She meditated on it. What does this mean? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for for my family? What does this mean for all of mankind? What indeed is happening here? It's far greater than I can even imagine even after hearing this revealed truth. I wonder myself, how often throughout her life did she think back to this night? How often, how much was the rest of her life empowered by what she experienced this night, by what she saw and by what she heard? Uh, One theologian's name's Donald McLeod. I love what he says about the virgin birth. He says, the virgin birth is posted on guard at the door of the mystery of Christmas. And none of us must think of hurrying past it. So if there's anything we can do this Christmas, slow down, slow down. We say Christ has come, Christ is Lord. Ponder that in your heart, though. What does it actually mean that God has come down to rescue you from your sin? Mary, she ponders this this gospel, this good news. Well, then we have more characters who are impacted by the coming of Christ, the shepherds. The sign of the manger child as the shepherds come to Bethlehem and see the child lying in the manger. It's, it's a deep contrast with this explosion of glory that they had just experienced in the field. But as the shepherds set their eyes for the first time on Jesus, they see, they see in this little one who's lying in the manger just how far Jesus is from them, how much greater he is from them, and how far he has come and how close he is. They see the glory and humility of God in this baby lying in the manger, and they are forever changed by it. They are never the same after this point. They they came to Bethlehem with anticipation and hope, and they leave Bethlehem with satisfaction and joy. You, You can almost sense it as they say, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. You almost can can feel the skepticism. Like, let's just go see. Let's go see for ourselves if, if what the angel has just said is true or did we all just have the same dream right now? Like, let's, let's just, you know, let's go for, for ourselves. Let's see for ourselves. But then when they see it, their eyes are open, their lives are never the same. They can leave rejoicing fully with no hesitation because what has been told them that a Savior has come, they have now went for themselves and seen the Savior lying there. They've seen God's glory. They've seen his humility. In their joy, the shepherds glorified and praised God for what he had done. And now as they return back to their fields, they have a story to spread far and wide because the glory of God and the salvation of sinners has arrived with the coming of Jesus. And this is that good news which is for all the people. All right, one point for us here to consider. It's real simple. You probably picked up on it. But the coming of Jesus should change us. The coming of Jesus should change us. And, and I just mean the mere fact of it. The mere fact of Jesus' birth means that God has come to us and for us. And because Jesus is Savior, Christ, and Lord, come to save 
people from all nations, we can never be the same when we embrace him by faith. You simply don't have the option. You don't have the option to embrace this Jesus by faith and not be changed. You must be changed by who Jesus is and what he has done. The good news of great joy will shape us into the kind of people who proclaim and who ponder deeply in our hearts and who praise Jesus for who he is and what he's done. If Jesus has left you unchanged, it is possible that you've never met him. But a question each of us need to consider, how different would your life be if Jesus had not been born? How different would it be if somehow, if somehow, some way, it was proved with, without a shadow of doubt that this is all a lie? This is all a lie. And that it was just made up. There was no Jesus of Nazareth. There was no baby born in a manger. That in fact, God has not come down. And Christianity has proved untrue. How would your life be changed by that? At all? Would it be changed at all? Would tomorrow still be the same for you? Would, would 2020 just be another year? Yeah, well, Jesus, you know, he's not who he said he was, or, you know, that never happened. Oh, well, it's not going to change what I have planned for the year. Because of who Jesus is and how he has come to us, we cannot leave him unchanged. We cannot. The advent of Jesus should change us. And that, that leads me, in our, in, as we close, to consider how we wait for the coming of Jesus. Because he, in fact, did come. This baby was born in this exact way, and angels did appear, and they did proclaim that the baby who's lying in the manger is the Savior. He is Christ the Lord who was born and who would later die for you. And this baby did grow up and this baby did live a sinless life and then he died on a cross for the forgiveness of sins and then he overthrew the power of death and he took his life back. He was resurrected and he has ascended and now he is reigning in power and authority over all of us. And one day the story will be complete when Jesus returns. And he is returning. And that's what we're waiting for. We are waiting with great anticipation and hope, just like the shepherds as they were going to Bethlehem, for the coming of the Lord. So how does Luke encourage us to wait? In two ways. First, we need to wait with humility, and then we need to wait for something, for glory. Wait with humility and wait for glory. Wait with humility. May the birth of Jesus forever change your perception on your status in the world. Christ came and he shared in our poverty. So don't feel ashamed if, you, if the world would consider you a have-not. You don't have to pretend you're more than you are. Okay? If, if you have a humble physical status, don't... Don't be ashamed of that. Don't despise it because Christ came to share in our weakness. If you are weak, don't feel like you have to pretend that you're strong. Christ came to partake in our weakness and he is coming back 
And on that day, we will all be caught up in his strength. So, so share in Christ's humble estate. Don't despise it. Pursue humility in your own lives as you wait for him. And also, something that is easily overlooked, embrace the ordinary Christian life. Embrace it. We always want to have shepherds in the fields moments as Christians, right? Like we want an inbreaking of God's glory. We, we want to have services where we just see people running to the altars and they're just, their lives are so changed in a dramatic moment. We want to go on mission and when we go, we want to come back with a report of how the Lord moved and how we saw hundreds of people come to faith in Jesus. We want to go to work and have a gospel conversation and immediately that person we're talking with comes to faith. We, we want to experience the glory of God. But what we forget is that the glory of God is present in the ordinary. It's present in those ordinary uh, uh, circumstances. It's present in our ordinary weekly gatherings. This meeting this morning, believe it or not, is glorious. Though normal and ordinary as it feels. God is no less present in the ordinary than he is in the extraordinary. So your static, boring, plain life is full of the glory of the Lord. So maybe as you head into 2020, see his splendor in the ordinary Christian life. Is there an ordinary Christian practice that you have been neglecting because it just feels too boring? It just feels like something you can, ah, yeah, yeah. I go to church a couple times a month, but it really doesn't matter that much. God still loves me. I don't know. I'll go on special days, you know, or, you know, I'll, I'll read the Bible if I feel like I can start a Bible reading plan and at the end of the year just be like, wow, I finished it. Look how great God is. But whenever you, you stop reading it for a few weeks, are you able to just ordinarily, humbly, and normally pick up the reading again to just meet with the Lord? Are you able to just wake up and feel groggy and have kids running all over the house or whatever craziness makes up your life and say, I'm going to take 30 seconds and pray. What ordinary Christian practice or privilege do you need to better embrace in this coming year? So let's, let's wait with humility for the coming of the Lord as he is going to burst in with his glory. And that's what we're waiting for, his glory. Behold Christ's glory with wonder. As we proclaim the gospel on a week-in, week-out basis, as you read the scriptures, as you pray to the Lord, behold the glory of Christ's coming and declare it with joy. Declare it with joy. Set your face in 2020 to proclaim that the Lord has come. Let's seek to go to the nations with the gospel. Let's seek to go to our neighbors and to impact our city with the gospel in ways that we never have in the past. And then let's worship Christ's glory with gratitude. Let's worship him in spirit and in truth as we wait for his arrival, his return. And then, yes, let's look forward to his glory with hope. One day he is coming back to set all things right. Think about that day. Long for that day and pray for that day. God was faithful to come down to save us. As, as we said at the beginning of the service, God is faithful to continue working in us and through us, even today. And what we need to remember is that God will be faithful to come back for us. And just as the manger, just as the manger was a sign 
to the shepherds that God indeed is faithful to do what he said he would do. We also have visible signs of God's faithfulness. And they're sitting all around you right now. The church. The church is a visible sign of the faithfulness of God. So let's, let's draw near to one another in this coming year. And as we do that, and as we see the Lord working in each other's lives, and as we start impacting one another for the sake of the gospel, and we continue making disciples and we see the Lord work, it will be further evidence to us that yes, indeed, one day the Lord is going to return. And as his people, we will be there with him and he will be our God. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for sending your son Jesus you took on flesh you humbled yourself you humbled yourself to the point of death even 